So we are almost done with our series on Romans. Uh, We started, if you remember, if you've been around uh, since the beginning, we started with the end and looked at the, the cultural context that the letter of Romans was written to, as well as the application that Paul was expecting out of the church. And then with, the, the, with that cultural and historical context and the application in our minds, then we went back uh, to the beginning to see what, uh, what Paul had taught to strengthen us in the gospel uh, in order that we would be able to fulfill the, the extended or the, the desired application that Paul had. And so we're right at that, at that point where Paul says, you know, we, we, in and of ourselves, we're not righteous, um, but we've been given the righteousness of God through faith, not by works of law. Um, and even though that we, we have uh, died to the law and we, we don't live according to the law uh, and we, we weren't saved by the law, we still have this obligation to do what Paul calls fulfilling the law. And he spends some time explaining why it's always been a faith in the scriptures and that, that by, by righteousness has never been something that we attained on our own through works of law. Um, the, and then began to open us up into uh, what it means to be in this sphere of grace and to live by the spirit of God, not by law. And so the chapter five and chapter six, he has worked out various aspects of this. But chapter seven, the chapter for today, um, is really an extended dive into this uh, idea of not being under law, that we do not live before God through works of law. Um, a number of years ago, I and a colleague were working with a woman who was trying to overcome sin and habits that were hurting herself and her family. And this is not a, this is not a TCC member. Um, as we talked and listened to get the full picture of, of what was going on in this woman's life and how it was being worked out, um, and as we were listening for clarity on kind of how to proceed, um, she kept repeating that, she, she, well, she kept repeating, I'm not a bad mom, I'm a good mom. And, and after a few times, I was, I was struck by this. Um, clearly, her, her habits and sins um, over time had been really harmful, um, and uh, extensively so. And none of us, you know, none of us ever want to be judged by our, our worst mistakes. Um, but we do need to take accurate stock of, of what we do. We have to be honest with ourselves and honest with others. Um, and, and I wasn't expecting her to say, I'm a bad mom. Um, but I was surprised to hear, hear her say, that she was a good mom. And I wasn't surprised because the deeds were in in such contrast to that statement. Um, I was just surprised to see how much that was important to her, that she saw herself as a good mom. And it's not as if determining whether she was good or bad was going to, you know, provide... Um, some avenue uh, that's going to help her, that was going to help her improve and become more loving to herself and to her family. It really wasn't a part of it. Um, it was just the fact that it was important for her to be able to say this. Um, and I couldn't help thinking that during the time, I mean, she was so repetitive and forceful in this that I think it seemed like she was trying to convince herself of it as much as she she was us. Um, but the big thing that I took away from the conversation 
was the fact that she had a standard that she was using to define um, what it meant to be a bad mom and what it meant to be a good mom, and that she was evaluating herself by it, and she was coming out on the end saying that she was indeed good. And, and I thought to myself that this, this dynamic is, is probably um, one of the most important aspects of of, of her coming out of this lifestyle, more, maybe more so than anything else, this, this dynamic of how she saw herself against this standard and that she was using this standard. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest challenges we face in this, this work of putting off sin, you know, chapter six last week, we, we're really under obligation to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ's resurrection. That's really where we're obligated to be. Um, and we're, we're to see, our, our, we are to present ourselves to God and to put off sin. Um, but one of the greatest challenges to this, and why Paul spends a whole chapter on it here, after giving us that burden in chapter 6, um, we, we have to change the way we think about laws and rules and other types of performance uh, standards. Um, it's, a, it's one of the greatest challenges that we have in this effort of putting off sin and of putting on righteousness. You know, as you, as you remember in the book of Romans uh, that we've already worked through from chapters uh, really 1, 2, and 3, uh, the, the Jews had a high opinion of the law. They took pride in the law. They boasted in the law um, and, and really attached their own sense of righteousness to it, uh, but were actually great violators of the law. Uh, Paul says, in your disobedience to the law, even though you put so much stock in it and you think that you're followers of it, um, you're you're disobeying it to such great degree that you are dishonoring and blaspheming blaspheming the name of God amongst the nations because of your disobedience. Our reliance upon laws and rules and standards can make us great hypocrites. Uh, it, can, it can easily lead us to deceive ourselves because we, we, we see, if, you know, like, the, like the Jews in, in Romans here, that if we attach ourselves to these good laws and, and aspirations for good works, we start to think of ourselves as good. I think that one reason for this is, is that we seem to pick out in, our, in establishing these standards and laws for ourselves, uh, we seem to pick out the things that we can easily do. Like, if we can do these handful of things, we're good people. The Jews did this with circumcision and obeying the Sabbath and certain dietary laws. So they had their kind of set things. And if we, we think that if we can check off these few boxes, we'll be qualified as good. We will be righteous. But invariably, like, like the person that Paul depicts in this, in this chapter, and like the woman that we were working with, there are always things that creep into our lives that wage war against us. Uh, things that we find ourselves not being able to overcome. And try as we may to be obedient, we still commit massive failures. And we like to think of ourselves as good, but if we're, if we're really honest, and if we have the benefit... Sometimes it doesn't seem like a benefit. Actually, most of the time it doesn't seem like a benefit. But if we have the benefit of people around us that are reminding us that we're not good, um, that helps us, we can see ourselves more clearly. 
And, and ultimately, we have to come to the point where we agree with Christ. You know, he had that young man that came up to him and said, good teacher. And Jesus responded, why are you calling me good? There is no one good except God. So the question is, why can't we do good and stop doing evil? In when, even when we're committed to doing good, even when we are wanting to follow the laws, even when we are focusing on following laws. So that's the big question, and that's the challenge that the, the man here in chapter 7 finds himself in. And so Paul explains this, the answer to this question and gets us to a point where we can understand law and sin in such a way that we can emerge from it in the Holy Spirit. And so the, one thing he addresses is, is how to think about rules and laws and other standards, okay? Second thing is, is the nature of law. What is law? How does it work? And three, uh, the nature of sin. And so after we look through these, is going to begin to to get into the ideas that we're going to increasingly discover in chapter 8 of what it means to, to live free of the law and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of the part one of a two-part series on life in the Holy Spirit. And that will be the, the culminating sermon for the series, pushing us into the life of obedience that, he's, that we saw in chapters 12 through 16. So what does it mean in this first, in this first part? What does it mean to live under the law or live by the law. The first thing that we need to understand that if we live under the law, that means that our self-understanding, so how we think of ourselves as good, is determined by our conformity to laws, rules, and other standards. If we live under law, then we have some law that we are establishing our goodness from. Um, we see ourselves as bad when we fail against these laws, or we see ourselves as good when we follow them. Again, we usually have a narrowly defined list of rules or laws. I think you know people that have uh, worked through the, the Old Testament in detail identify 613 commands in, in the Old Testament that were part of the Mosaic Code. And really that's not accurate because um, it's clear that the, that the Old Testament really doesn't even contain all of the laws that, that were given. Anyway, 600 is a lot. Okay, but most of us aren't walking around with a, with a list of 600. Most of us have a few ideas, a few lists, or a few laws on a list. Um, and we usually don't come up with those, this list of, of evaluation standards um, through some sort of a thorough, comprehensive, well-thought-out process. It's usually something that we've developed uh, from the communities that we're in. So people that are in a religious or church community are going to have probably a lot of laws and performance rules based upon that, that religious community. Others have different types of rules, and we've spent some time talking about that as well, and there's a lot of those kinds of dynamics that are present within our, within our current politics. Um, anyway, we build those laws around the communities of people. So our self-understanding of our goodness is defined by our ability to perform against those particular standards. So when we've, this is what it means to live under the law. So when we violate laws, we feel condemned. And that is our conscience working. It tells us that we've done something wrong. Or it could also tell us that we have failed to do something good, which means we've been negligent 
in something that we should have done. So condemnation is this, is this feeling that we have violated the law or failed to do something that we were supposed to. And then the following up sense or feeling that there's nothing that we can do to erase that. We've screwed up. I can't change the fact and that there's going to have to be some sort of penalty paid and that I'm going to have to pay it. That's the sense of, that's the feeling of condemnation. Um, I, I've mentioned this before when I, and I don't remember the, the last time I brought this up in church. It could, could be quite a while. Um, but there was a time where I had to stand before a judge when I um, was, was uh, uh, indicted for accidentally uh, selling alcohol to a minor. All right, so it wasn't a light offense. It's a gross misdemeanor. Um, and the, the potential fine and even jail time are not insignificant. Uh, but, you know, I had to show up for the hearing. Um, I had to meet with the prosecutor. I got, I got my fingerprints and booked and the whole nine yards. And so when I went to my hearing, I walked into the courtroom, and you could literally feel the weight of condemnation. And some of you have had some, some challenges with the law and, and know what this feeling is like. Um, and, and you could feel that weight of condemnation on almost everybody that was there. So most of the people that were there were either defendants or lawyers for the defendants or friends or family of the defendants. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty quiet except for the, just the whispering of, of, of cases getting resolved and pleas being made or agreed to. And, but it's, it was weighty. That weight, that sense of guilt and condemnation was pretty heavy. Um, you felt like everyone who was there with a charge would do whatever they could uh, to rewind their lives a bit and erase what they had done and start over. But you don't have to have had a courtroom experience to, to know that feeling. I think, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we've probably have all said numerous times, I wish I could go back and start over. And that's that, that's that sense of condemnation in that I've brought myself to this point in my life where I've really messed it up and there's nothing that I can do to change it. And, and I'm bearing the weight and the consequences of what I've done. And that's where we all get that's where we all get unless our consciences have been seared um, and we've become licentious, which means that to heck with the rules, I'm just going to live how I want to. Um, and that's, but that's not really the person that, that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 7. That was really chapter 6. Chapter 7 is this person that has this sense of obligation to law and is trying to do good but can't. Chapter 6 is about a person that really doesn't have a sense of obligation to law, that finds that this freedom in Christ is a wonderful thing and that they want to do anything they want to do. But for those who want to do good but find themselves doing the opposite of what they want to do, we end up feeling condemned. That's the wretched person at the end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And obviously he's not dead, but he's feeling the consequences of sin. Sin brings death. And death is really not just that end-of-life thing that happens to us when we cease to exist in bodily form. It is the experience of shame and guilt and fear and anger and all the consequences, separation and isolation from people and from God. That's what death is. 
And while, make, and while confessing sins and making amends does bring some relief, over time, the years of repeated failures bring us face-to-face with um, a very clear reality of our lack of goodness. Even when we want to do good. And it's, at this, and it's at this point where many people say, screw it, and start living licentiously, like I mentioned. And I would say culturally, this is where probably most of our culture is at. I think it has something to do with the rise of the nuns, in addition to you know, hypocrisy amongst those who call themselves Christians. I think that, that there has been this sense that God and his laws are uh, not attainable, or they're ridiculous, or they're not relevant, and so we're just throwing them off altogether. But I think a lot of it comes from, for whatever reason, a sense that um, I'm not even going to try. But for those who sense that there is a God behind the laws and the rules and the standards that they're eventually going to have to stand before, um, we, can't, we can't just, uh, be, we're not okay with just throwing off the laws. We're not okay with just throwing off these, these standards that, that God has put there. So wretchedness seems to be the inevitable end. Um, and this takes us to the next point, the nature, the nature of law. So that's the nature, um, that's what it means to live under the law, okay? We are evaluating ourselves on the basis of some performance standard, and we get to the point where we really, we find it so overwhelming and burdening that it's almost crushing. So we put ourselves, well, we're under law and we put ourselves under law because of some of the aspects of the nature of law and how we think about it. So we need to change how we think about law. If we, if we narrow our list of laws and rules and standards, so that can be biblical things, it could be unbiblical things, but if we narrow it to the biblical things, which is the context for chapter 7 of Romans, there are important things that we have to keep in mind. The first one is that the law is indeed good. Paul says it's a spiritual, which means it's from God. It's not from man, it's from God. God has given it to us, and it's good. Okay? Just because we find ourselves not able to follow it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. We may find ourselves hating it, hating the law, and we may find ourselves wanting to rebel against it, but in the end, the laws of God are good, and they're good for us. The laws of God establish what is righteous and true and good, and they establish what is sin and evil. And that's going to be increasingly important as we, as we go through this chapter. So they set the standard for, for what righteous living should look like. And so when, when I say the law in this, and I'm talking about God's righteous standards, any, any of the rules, Old Testament, New Testament, right? anything God has given to us that expresses his will, here's what it means to live as a human being under the rule of God. Okay, so, the, so law establishes evil and it establishes good. And they, they give us clarity, and because of the clarity they, they provide in terms of what is good, it seems to us that following the law is going to provide life and righteousness. And Paul says it in, in chapter 7, he says, um, that which, the, the very thing that promised life proved to be death. And so we see law and we say, you know what, it's going to be great if I can follow that. 
Stop living this sin that's bringing destruction and death to me and to those that I love, and I, and I will be able to do what God wants me to do, and, and I'll have life. But the problem is, is that God has never made it a quality of law to produce life. To us, it seems like it's going to promise, like to us, it seems like it promises life. And, and that's really where our self-righteousness comes in. We see the law, we aspire to follow it, and we can say, hey, I can do it. I can be good. But then we find ourselves failing against the very law that we have aspired to give us life. And this is another important aspect of law that we have to grasp. So first of all, it's good. Second of all, um, it seems to promise life, but in the end <laughs> brings death. And that's because of this third point. Laws are what the scriptures refer, well, this is my term, it's a base of operation. Okay? A base of operation for sin. Sin sees a law, and it says, okay, I'm going to break it. We see the law and we think it's going to give me life. Sin sees the law, says, okay, here's my opportunity to kill and destroy. And so laws create a base of foundation, a beachhead, so to speak, for destruction in the power and at the hand of sin. So if you can think of, uh, you know, when a, when a military is trying to take a portion of land or a beach. It sets up a beachhead, establishes a base, and from there they work into the land. That's what sin does. That's what sin does with law. It says, okay, now I have a place to work. Paul says prior to that, sin didn't have a place to work. It existed, and it rained, but it didn't have a place to work death. Laws cannot make us righteous. In the hands of sin, they kill us. And then consciousness of our own sin, we die. And that's the shame and the guilt and the fear and the anger and all these things. We realize that we are naked and we realize we are ashamed. We realize we are not good and our self-image is destroyed. So we, we aspire to fulfill this law and we just sink deeper into our own condemnation. We realize that we have fallen short of the glory of God, which means we realize that we have not achieved the, the, the mantle that God has put upon us as human beings to have dominion over this earth. Instead, we are enslaved. The law is holy, righteous, and good, but in the hands of sin, it is a weapon that kills us. Now, I kind of want to do a little bunny trail here. Um, when do we become accountable then to our sin? And this, this issue is something that chapter 7 raises. When do we become accountable for our sin? Okay, so we know that the scriptures teach that be simply for the fact that we are human beings, we are going to sin. Okay, from the moment of our birth. Okay, Paul, David says, um, in sin my mother conceived me. All right, I was born with iniquity. It's a consistent theme throughout scriptures. All right, and so some have gone on to think then and articulate, I think wrongly so, and I'm going to explain that here in a moment, that um, once you're born, you're automatically condemned to hell. All right? It's not, the, it's not the case. Paul says here in chapter 7, you're not dead until you become aware of the law, and then 
sin uses that law to then condemn you. So your awareness of that. And so um, you can call it the age of accountability or, or whatever, and you can ask, well, when is it? And there's no defined point in Scripture given, but it seems to be somewhere in that 11 to 13 range, depending on culture and exposure to, to Scripture and all these kinds of things. But there's a point where we as human beings realize God exists, uh, and I am accountable to him and to his law. Whenever that is, that's the moment that we die. That's the moment that we die. All right, done with the bunny trail. I'm sure we'll have some questions on that at the Q&A, but we'll have plenty of time, I promise. So now what about the, the, the laws and rules that God doesn't create, but that we create, okay? And we can create all kinds of laws and rules that we think we need to live by. They're fabrications of our own desire for what we see to be good. But we also see in Romans that Paul was also dealing with this. He was dealing with people who had established some additional rules in addition to the laws of God and, and saying that you had to follow these things in order to be righteous. And so whether they're from God or whether they're not, the principles are consistent. Sin will use whatever laws we have set up in our minds and in our consciences. If we think that we need to do this or not do that in order to be good, sin is going to use that and it will kill us and our consciences will be violated. doesn't matter whether it's from God or not. Sin uses all of these laws and standards in the same way. Which brings us to this third point. What is the nature of sin? Sin is an active and alive force. And I would say that this is probably the thing that most run true to me in a new way, uh, studying through Romans this time. Um, it's, not, it's not like it was a new idea. It just enlarged in my mind. Sin is an active and alive force force that is distinct from us, all right? It is not us. It manifests itself in our fleshly bodies, and it has enslaved our fleshly bodies to violate the laws of God and whatever laws we have put into our minds that we are evaluating ourselves against. And sin brings, therefore, death into our minds and into our bodies, Okay, it expresses itself in our desires. Paul calls them desires of the flesh. So sin expresses itself through our bodies in our, in our fleshly desires. And sometimes these desires, they're really painful. Paul calls, I mean, this is the word passion. This is the word passion. Passion literally means the suffering of desire. So to alleviate the suffering, we give in to the desire, and that's when we sin. Sin looks for laws to disobey. Sin looks for laws to violate so it can bring death. And this is where we need to be mindful and alert. Sin and its expression in our bodies through our desires is not us. It feels like it's us because it's coming from our body but it's not us. Our sense of self, we often let be determined by what sin does. And Paul is quite clear in this. 
And this is a, you can tell as he goes through the chapter that this is a reality that he came to. With our bodies, we follow the desires of the flesh, but with our minds, we follow God. And this sets up this conflict and this trouble. Because the flesh is under the control of sin. Our mind desires to do right. Our flesh, under the control of sin, desires to do evil. And so there's this, there's this conflict and there's this tension, and that's this wretchedness. But if we're not clear that, it's, that sin is distinct from us, then, then we will never be free from it. We'll never be free from sin. We'll never be free from law. We often think and feel that to find our true selves is to follow these desires. And that's kind of, again, this, the new law for the age. We've thrown off the laws of God. I'm now here to orient myself to what I feel. To fulfill my own conscience and, to my, and my own mind is, is my highest calling. I need to be true to myself. Uh, and this is the new law. And the, 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 the pain of that the sadness of that is, is actually a commitment to follow the force of evil. If we do not recognize that, that God has established law to point out what is sin and to point out what is good, if we, say, if we just throw that all away and say, you know what, I can know from my own heart, through my own desires and my own will, we're actually making a commitment to follow the force of evil. And it's, that's amazingly alarming. And, and sin works against the laws of God. It is opposed to the laws of God. And it shows its evil in how it uses the holy, righteous, and good laws of God and that it can take them and then use them to destroy. As Paul says, outside of Christ, we are a flesh sold under sin. Outside of Christ, sin is our master at work and our desires. And the minute we discover a law, sin comes to life and enslaves us to violate the law, and it kills us. And so that's the nature of sin. It is an active, living force distinct from us that we are enslaved to if we're outside of Christ. And we have no control over it. And it will destroy us. Now Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 7 that, that there is a new way through the Spirit and not through the old way of the written code to live. To do something about sin, we have to do something about law. If law is the base of operation for sin, if we are enslaved to sin, if we're under law because of that, we have to do something about law. For God has to do something about law. And what God did with law is made it no longer applicable to us. We're no longer under law. We have been released from the obligations of law. What does this mean? This means that there are no laws that determine whether we are good or bad. There are no longer the means through which we are evaluated. Laws hold no authority over our lives. God is not holding us accountable to them. God is not judging us by them. God is not giving us good things because we obey them. 
God is not punishing us because we violate them. We are 100% released from the law, and it has no claim to us at all. Now, when I say us, I mean that those who have received the gift of God's grace, the gift of his righteousness through faith and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in Christ's mastering of, of creation, which he did in his life, in dying on the cross for our sins, which paid the penalty of our sin, and then resurrecting from the dead, which shows that he's master over death and sin. If we've believed in Jesus Christ, we are baptized into Jesus Christ's death. We are baptized into Jesus Christ's life. We are no longer under law. We have been justified. We have been declared not guilty. We don't have to keep retrying ourselves. We have been declared righteous. To continue to see yourself under law as if your goodness is dependent upon your performance and that God's view of you is dependent upon your performance is essentially to still think as someone who doesn't know or believe the gospel. That's the fact of the matter. To think that way is to still think as an outsider, is to still think as a non-Christian. So Paul starts with this metaphor. I'm going to conclude with it. If two people are married, they are bound together as husband and wife until one dies. And he doesn't get into grounds for divorce and all those kinds of things. It's just the, on the big picture. Two people are married. If one dies, the other person is no longer obligated to them. They can marry someone else. And Paul says this. That's like us in the law. We were bound to the law until we believed in Jesus Christ. We were declared righteous and not guilty, had the righteousness of God. Boom, we've died of the law. We're no longer obligated to it. We're now obligated to Christ. It's the same idea. It's, It's that clear cut. And you can see, and, I, and maybe some of you are thinking this, well, this would just give people the, the license to do whatever it is that they want to do. Well, Paul's dealt with that in chapter 6. And we're going to get to chapter 8, and Paul says, now you are under obligation. We are under obligation. But it's not to law. And it's not to a performance standard. And it's not based upon guilt or fear or shame or judgment or any of those kinds of things. But that's in chapter 8. But before we get to chapter 8 and discover what it means that before discovering what we're obligated to and what that means and the power behind it, we have to settle into this reality. We are not under law. We're not under law. Paul says that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So all of us probably have, if we're honest with ourselves, some written codes or unwritten codes in our minds that we evaluate ourselves by and that we evaluate others by. In order for us to be considered good or for others to be considered good. So don't you long to have a sense of goodness about yourself that isn't dependent upon your performance to those standards? I know you long to comply with the standards. 
And then you'll go, oh, yes, now I've arrived. What you're seeking for is what Christ offers, but it's not because you've conformed to the standards. If you long for that and resist the gospel, it's because you still believe that you can establish your own righteousness. And I'm afraid to tell you that wretchedness is the only thing that's going to come of it. And experience a deeper and increasingly heavy sense of condemnation. Don't you long to be free? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful to not have to wonder if you're a good dad or a good mom, or a bad dad or a bad mom, or a good whatever and a bad or a bad whatever? Like if those things weren't even part of how you thought anymore. There's no reason to make any judgments at all about your sense of self. You are no longer under any standard if you are in Christ. Now again, well, what are we under? And what are we obligated to? That's coming next week. Rest in the fact that there, you are not a, no longer under any, any law or any standard and being evaluated by it. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for this, this wonderful, this life-giving truth.